Welcome to Daily Drive for Tuesday, August 1st, 2023. I'm Jamie Butters, Executive Editor of Automotive News here in Detroit. And I'm Jake Neer in Detroit and for Kellen Walker. Today on the show, Toyota's quarterly profit almost doubles. Ford dealers may soon be able to stock lots with F-150 Lightnings, really for the first time. And we have the first monthly sales results from July. Plus, Cornell University Director of Labor Studies, Arthur Wheaton, joins us to talk about what to expect from ongoing UAW talks with the Detroit Three. There's a lot of factors on labor side making them more willing to take the risk to go out on strike, which will force the companies back to the table. Let's run through all the news you need to know to keep up in the auto industry. Toyota nearly doubled its global operating profit in the latest quarter. It was able to ramp up supply on semiconductor shipments, and it shifted sales into high gear in major markets led by Japan. In the period from April to June, Toyota's operating profit soared to $7.75 billion. That's up from $4 billion a year earlier. But Toyota also warned in Tuesday's earnings announcement that lagging performance in its top market, North America, is undermining investment in electric vehicle production. Operating margin in North America languished at 3% in the quarter, below that of other regions. For example, operating margin was 14% in Japan and over 6% in Europe. Meanwhile, Toyota will build a new three-row electric crossover in 2025 in Kentucky for Subaru. That'll be shortly after it starts building its own version, which is tentatively called the BZ5X, according to people with knowledge of the plans who spoke with us here at Automotive News. The strategy follows the two Japanese automakers' earlier collaboration on launching the Toyota BZ4X and Subaru Solterra compact crossovers in 2022. Toyota assembled those vehicles in Japan, but their initial sales were halted for months because their wheels would fall off. The companies haven't released a name and other details of Subaru's three-row electric crossover. Subaru said in May that it planned to have four battery-powered crossovers in its lineup by 2026. Ford says it has resumed building F-150 Lightning electric pickups after a six-week plant shutdown designed to triple output by later this year. That increase in production will help Ford stock dealer lots with Lightnings, something that hasn't happened with any regularity since the truck launched last year as the company raced to fulfill orders. Ford says customer wait times for the Lightning are at about three months. That's down from as much as two years when it launched. We talked earlier about Toyota's global quarterly earnings. Here in the U.S. in July, sales rose more than 8% to about 192,000 vehicles. Volume was up almost 9% at the Toyota division and 3.3% at Lexus. The automaker continues to be hampered by some of the industry's lowest supplies of new cars and light trucks, but July marked Toyota's fourth consecutive monthly advance. Meanwhile, Hyundai saw its sales rise almost 10% in July to about 67,000 vehicles. Retail volume edged up 2% to almost 62,000. The Tucson crossover set a July record, rising 23% to about 18,000. Kia set a July sales record of almost 71,000 vehicles. That's up 14%. The results were boosted by a 72% increase in sales of electrified models and a 17% jump in deliveries of utility vehicles. 
Mazda continued its sales role. They rose for the 10th straight month behind a 159% increase in car sales and a 23% rise in light truck volume. As of recording time, we're still waiting on monthly results from Honda and Subaru today. We expect results tomorrow from Ford and Volvo. Most other automakers release sales results on a quarterly basis, if at all. And TrueCar says it lost more than $20 million in the second quarter, nearly double its loss from a year earlier. The online shopping site named a new CEO in June and announced a restructuring plan meant to trim 24% of its workforce. TrueCar's net losses grew to more than $20 million, up from an $11 million loss in the previous year and a $19.6 million loss in the previous quarter. Revenue dropped more than 7% to just over $39 million, but is up more than 6% from the first quarter. The company said its second quarter net loss included a $7.1 million charge for restructuring. And those are today's headlines. Jamie, Toyota, some great news for the company about their global operating profit last quarter. Uh, But how worried do you think they should be about North America? Well, Toyota is always a company in search of a crisis. Uh, it's so big and so successful, it's hard to motivate people sometimes to uh, to get going uh, without some some sense of crisis. So you always want to find the the one negative and and highlight that. But but it's not a joke. I mean, North America is hugely important to this company, and they've still been very supply constrained here. You know the. Production is picking up worldwide. They're getting much better supply of chips, but clearly not able to keep up with demand in the U.S. You know, we saw Toyota beat uh, GM one year, and then they've really not even been close since then. Uh, It's going to take time to see where their real demand is. See how things shake out in the second half of the year. Coming up, we'll dig into the ongoing UAW talks with the Detroit Three with Cornell University Director of Labor Studies, Arthur Wheaton. That's next on Daily Drive. Hi, I'm Pete Bigelow, host of Shift, a podcast about mobility from Automotive News. Each week, I bring you a conversation with leaders who are on the cutting edge of transportation, like this one with consultant and strategist Salika Josiah Talbot. The technologists are forcing themselves in a space that they shouldn't be. And I think the social scientists and politicians are falling down on the job. To hear more about the new technology and policy reshaping the way people and goods move around, join me on Shift. New episodes each Sunday on autonews.com or wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome back to Daily Drive. I'm Jamie Butters with Jake Neer. It may sound like a cliche to say that these will be uniquely difficult talks or that the very future of the UAW hangs in the balance, but there's no denying these are extremely important negotiations for the industry and for the UAW. New President Sean Fain has taken an unusually combative tone heading into the talks as he works to restore the natural adversarial role of capital L labor against capital C capital after an epic scandal that sent two of his predecessors and a couple handful of other scoundrels from both sides to prison. It makes sense to show strength and opposition, but now he has to negotiate a contract, actually three contracts, at the same time that Lana Payne and Unifor are trying to reach three deals. And then he needs to get those contracts ratified by what seemed like a very agitated union membership. To discuss these issues and more, we held a live chat last week on LinkedIn and Facebook with Arthur Wheaton, Director of Labor Studies at Cornell University, and reporter Michael Martinez, who covers the UAW and Ford for Automotive News. 
here's some of our conversation. Are just how different, like on a scale from one to 10, how different is the, the environment with the UAW, the automakers, the electrification revolution? How different are things now from how they have been during negotiations over the past 20 years or so? I guess I'd have to put it at about an eight. So there's a lot of different <laughs> environmental factors that have been going on that are impacting it. So you've mentioned quite a few of them in your introduction, you know, brand, brand new union president, mm -hmm. but you're also seeing record profits or huge profits from the automakers, history of very high unemployment or very high inflation and very low unemployment. <laughs> and there's a very high approval rating for unions right now. So unions have a much more favorable view most since like the 1960s. So there's a lot of factors on labor side, making them more willing to take the risk to go out on strike, which will force the companies back to the table. Art, we're going to get into a lot of the issues surrounding this year's negotiations. But to start off, I want to ask the question that I think is really on everybody's mind right now. How much of a chance of a strike do you think there is this fall with one of the automakers or even with all three of them? I'd only put it at about 90% for at least one of them to go out on strike. So I think it's very likely to have at least one of them go out on strike. And part of that is just to get the contract ratified so that until you can say to the membership and you got 340,000 eager people or, or hundreds of thousands of people watching what's going on, not just directly for the big three, but you got hundreds of thousands of people watching to see what's happening. And you got to convince all of those members to vote yes on a contract. So getting a 51% ratification is not easy and you have to prove you pushed it as far as you can. So up until this point, Sean Fain has really showed a willingness to buck tradition. And I think the biggest example of that is the fact that he sort of canceled the ceremonial handshake events that typically kick off bargaining where union leaders and automaker executives literally shake hands across the table as a photo op. I'm wondering if you think that was a smart idea. And if so, what did he gain from canceling that and hosting his own events where he went to various assembly plants around Metro Detroit and met directly with workers? I think in the grand scheme of things, it didn't make a whole lot of difference. Like you said, it's a largely symbolic event, but to use public relations speak, it wasn't on brand for, for Sean Fain to go shaking hands with what he is saying is quote unquote, the enemy or the battle is with them. And I thought it was brilliant to say, no, we're going to do the events, but we're going to shake hands with the membership. So this is kind of a coming out party for Sean Fain for a chance to get a chance to meet the members. It's not as critical for the leaders to shake hands. One of the things about it to me, and we've remarked uh, numerous times over the the months since he's been elected. I mean, how few people actually voted? What a, it was a seven percent of the membership that actually voted for him. So it's not like he has hundreds of thousands of uh, adoring fans in the union. He's still getting to be known. He's still you know getting to meet people. And it wasn't that long ago that the election just finally ended. They actually. <laughs> could have dragged it out like they were hanging chads and recounting the votes because it was a really close tally. But they said, we have to end it now because we can't change our bargaining convention. So they said, you know what? We're not contesting it. But it was it was a very close. They had to go to a runoff for the election. It was that mm -hmm. close. So I think this is a chance to saying, 
this is me, this is what I'm doing. And I really like the Facebook Live opportunity to say, ask me a question and he'll read them right off of the screen while they're asking them. So he's much more transparent than historically. So let's get into some of the issues that are going to dominate the conversation here over the next few months. The union has a really long list of demands. They range from restoring cost of living adjustment into the contract to significant wage gains, ending the two-tier wage system. I want to start with COLA. They've talked a lot about that. Or why, why do you think that the union is so intent on winning back that benefit? And do you think the automakers would be willing to add that back in? Uh, number one, why are they intent on getting COLA back? Because we've just experienced really high inflation that's historically very unusual. So the membership is looking at it saying, gee, I'm not keeping up with inflation. The prices of everything are going through the roof and my wages aren't keeping up. So the COLA is an important thing to help um, keep up with those costs. But they have to remember that they they didn't just give up COLA, they exchanged that for something else. And there was a lot of other really big ticket items they were fighting over at the times. So they got things in exchange for previous concessions like profit sharing and a lot for their retiree health care benefits. So they didn't just give it up saying, oh yeah, we don't want this anymore. They, they exchange it for other very urgent needs. But the time is now, if you're making huge profits, they can, the automakers can afford to do it. That doesn't mean they want to, but they can literally afford to. Sorry to interrupt, Mike. I, I mean, I do think there's an argument on in defense of the automakers trying to bargain hard for themselves, which is that these last couple of years have been extraordinary. You know, the supply was so tight, the pricing was, you know, record high and the margins were huge. And the Union members, you know, got to participate in that. But the other part is that they are being expected to invest, you know, so many billions of dollars in electrification. The EVs don't make money yet, and they're probably quite a ways from it. You know, it's been described as like a profit desert they have to try to get across. So, I mean, it's not like they're doing, you know, huge, you know, buybacks or acquisitions or, you know, they're trying to hoard this cash <laughs> so that they can uh, get across to whatever 2030 or 2028, some point where maybe the EVs can break even and start to provide some some profit. Does that all fall on deaf ears uh, for the labor folks? I think everybody looks at their own pocketbook saying, you know what, my costs are going up. There's really no reason. It's something we've had in the past. We want it now. But I think everybody has to watch it. What's different is the percentage of the sales that go to the big three. So they're no longer having more than 50%. If you go back to about 1965, UAW represented auto workers represented 95% of all the vehicles sold in the US. Now you're way under 50. So let's uh, zoom in a bit on that COLA issue on that profit sharing formula that you mentioned. So these days, workers get pretty hefty profit sharing checks. They get a dollar for every million dollars worth of pretex North American profits uh, for Ford and GM. I think Stellantis' formula is slightly different, but it, it works out to be about the same. This past year, that meant nearly 13 grand at GM, almost 15 grand at Stellantis and $9,000 at Ford. The other side the automakers would argue that, yes, inflation has been a big problem the past two years. 
it's already going down. We're seeing it at about 3%, I think, as of June. Predictions are that it'll level back to about 2%. In recent years before this latest spike, it was at 2%, even negative some years. So the, the automakers' workers would not have really benefited much from a cost of living adjustment. They obviously want both if they can get them added onto the profit sharing. Art, I'm wondering if you think if the union is insistent on getting this back. I, I think when you go into bargaining, you ask for as much as you possibly can. And whether you're willing to accept something less than that really depends on how much leverage you have at the table. So I don't think you go in saying, oh, I only want what I think is reasonable and only the bare minimum. You go in asking for what you can get. And then you have to talk and negotiate and bargain and see whether you can get most of what you want. They won't get everything they want, but they're going to try to get as much as they can. And do they miss out on the cost of living? Historically, it hasn't been that bad. But a lot of bargaining happens for the the union or the members look in the rearview mirror. What has happened in the past? We want to make up for the last four years. And the companies look in through the windshield looking ahead. What do we expect for the next four years? And as Jamie said, we got to dump all this money into electric vehicles. They sell better when you can actually get batteries for them. So I think they can kind of start making money when they can start getting the batteries in their plants. But the companies look forward and the union's looking back to catch up. So to be clear, uh, in each of these contracts, the workers also get $1,500 bonuses each year. Ford's contract calls that an inflation bonus. So I wonder if this is almost will be uh, semantics in terms of the type of bonuses they get. But to your point about bargaining for everything you can, I wonder if there's compromise or if there's an opportunity for a win on the union side when it comes to wages. They're obviously seeking major increases. The typical full-time worker starts out at about $18, $19 an hour takes them eight years to get to that full $32 an hour top wage. Do you see an opportunity there for them to cut down that growing period or get significant wage increases this year? I think the platform that was even more um, loudly said by Sean Fain instead of the, the COLA was ending two tiers. So trying to narrow that gap. And it's similar to what you've seen for the um, – SAG after a strike and for others, they're not fighting over the top tier. They're fighting to try to help bring everybody up to a living wage. And as you were mentioning, a lot of the people that start at like a General Motors components holding plant start at what you could get at Target. So it's you want to make sure that you're getting good wages and they're trying to bring everybody up to that traditional first tier wage if you can. It doesn't mean they'll get there, but they can certainly try to get a good path towards it, which they were able to do at the Teamsters and UPS. They got a big chunk, at least in the tentative agreement. Well, I'm, I'm just wondering, we've seen Sean Fain raise members' expectations so high. He's not talking about shortening that growing period. He's talking about eliminating it. He wants to wind the clock back to pre-bankruptcy. I believe it was 90 days to top wage when you came in at the automakers. He wants that. And I'm wondering if you know, there is an opportunity for compromise. There is an opportunity to shorten that growing period, say down to four years, two years, one year even. That's still not eliminating the tiers. That's still not doing what he says he wants to do. So, Art, do you think that'll make it tougher to actually ratify a deal, even if they make some gains that, you know, is not quite what Sean Fain has been promising? 
Yeah, if you make hard and fast targets that you promise in bargaining, it makes it really hard to get things ratified. If you said, yes, we want to get $1 per hour wage increase and you get 99 cents and a vacation day, you got a lot more value, but you didn't get what you promised. And people say, you promised me a dollar, you didn't get it all. But if you were only asking for what was reasonable, let's say you were saying, well, I only want a dollar. If that's what you go after, you end up with 50 cents. So you want to make sure you're going for a lot. And I think there is room for an agreement here. And I think the leverage is having the auto industry, which is making huge profits, not be making cars. So the threat of a strike is more of an important tool than the actual strike itself. So the goal is, is to come in strong so that you don't have to resort to the strike. And I'm hoping they don't, but I think the odds are pretty good that at least one of them will run into difficulty and that will be a signal to the others that, yes, they're serious. And I don't think Sean Fain is playing games. I've got no reason to doubt his intentions for this bargaining. There's a couple of good questions I want to get to, but one of them was uh, about the UPS contract. You know, does It's asking, you know, does that influence the discussions or I wonder if it, if it shows any pattern or any uh, any any lessons we can learn from that heading into these talks? Uh, I'd be a little more confident once it's ratified because you got 340,000 people that have to vote on it and getting 10 people to agree on anything is never easy. So getting it ratified would be one thing. And the second is I really like the idea that Sean O'Brien used or the strategy to have the deadline be a month before the actual deadline. So he had an earlier target when they didn't reach that July 1st target, they had a lot of practice uh, picketing and getting ready for strike and they mobilized all of those members. And I think similar strategies could be useful for the UAW. And I think they've done a lot of useful strategies in terms of trying to motivate the membership. And as you said in your introduction, there is a lot of support. There's a lot of emotion in these bargaining. Arthur Wheaton is the Director of Labor Studies at Cornell University. He spoke with me and our own Michael Martinez on our most recent LinkedIn Live event. You can find that full conversation on Automotive News LinkedIn page. That's Daily Drive for today. I'm Jamie Butters. And I'm Jake Neer in for Kellen Walker. Thanks to Automotive News journalists Hans Grimel, Naoto Akamura, Larry Velaquet, David Phillips, and Mark Holmer for their reporting for today's podcast. You can get the latest news on labor talks, earnings and sales results, and everything happening in the auto industry at autonews.com. Come back tomorrow for my conversation with Hisai CEO David Lee about how the company has become one of the largest LiDAR companies in the world. If you enjoy the podcast, remember to like, leave a review, and subscribe so you never miss an episode.